in 2007, I was diagnosed with inflammatory breast cancer and I had a job. I was doing a great job of making rich people richer in Washington, DC. I was excellent at it. Um, but that day I was diagnosed. I called my mom and dad, both of who are teachers. And I said to them, um, what do people who don't have insurance do when they get some sort of diagnosis like this? I don't know where that came from other than I knew that my, my treatments were going to cost $250,000 each treatment that I had. And I knew my insurance was only going to cover 80% of it. So I knew I was going to have to clear out my 401k and go in debt. So I think that must've hit me. Welcome to the Live Damn Well podcast. My goal with this project is pretty simple. In a world which has become increasingly divisive and polarized, I want to bring you a balanced perspective of health. To deliver on that promise, I'll seek out experts with conflicting opinions to tackle the topic of health from as many angles as possible in order to make this podcast into an amazing resource for anyone looking to improve their health. Thanks for joining me. everybody, welcome back to the Live Damn Well podcast. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Nicole all about free healthcare, the problems with actually implementing a free healthcare system, and much, much more. But before we get into that, please consider supporting the show in one of the following ways. You can either buy me a coffee with the link in the description, keep me caffeinated, keep the show going if you've been a supporter for a while. You can also check out my book, which will be released by the time that this airs. It's a revamp of my book, Return to Human, now titled What COVID-19 Taught Us About a Sick America and a Holistic Guide to Biohack Your Brain, Sleep, Nutrition, Gut Health, and Fitness. If you don't know what it's about, if you didn't get the version Return to Human, well, first of all, if you did get the version Return to Human, then you can reach out to me and I'll send you a free copy of the new version. Just send me the receipt of the old version and I'd be happy to, to give you this version. It's it's an updated version of the past one, including an extra chapter on the N of one experiment, which as I talk about in the book, I believe to be really the true revolutionary approach to uh, self-healing for everybody. It's a methodical scientific approach to self-healing, really. It's gonna change the way that people view health. So what is my book about? Well, it discusses several things regarding the pandemic. I know at this point, we're all pretty sick of hearing even the words COVID-19 causes us to cringe immediately. But I think it's important to, to reflect back on the problems that we had, the solutions that we came up with during the pandemic, if we're going to actually come out of this as, as, better, as better humans, as healthier humans. And so even though this might be a cringe-worthy topic, I think it is very, very, very much um, worth it to go back, revisit it, and come away with something that will not only heal ourselves, but will heal the planet. I discuss the fact that we're a chronically sick population of humans with 60% of American adults having at least one chronic disease, 54% of children having at least one chronic disease. We are as divided as ever before as well with which adds fuel to the flame of our chronic disease prevalence. But my book goes far beyond just a discussion of these events. 
I offer a practical guide on all of the lifestyle factors that we can use to pull ourselves out of this deep hole which COVID revealed we were in. And in doing so, in healing ourselves, I do believe that we will have a positive impact on the planet. So if you want to get your copy, hit the link in the description. It will actually be free for several weeks, so you can get the Kindle version, download it, read it, and please let me know what you think. Today's first episode sponsor is Thrive Market, an online grocery store which is on a mission to make healthy living accessible and affordable for everyone. I love Thrive because the, you, you'll save like 25 to 50% off of the price you'd find in a physical health food store near you. And the best part is, is that Thrive delivers to your door. The membership is just about the price of a cup of coffee per month, and they have a curated list of non-toxic cosmetics, cleaning products, high-quality supplements, and sustainable frozen wild-caught fish and grass-fed beef, all shipped straight to your door. And for every paid membership, Thrive actually sponsors a membership for a low-income family, which actually has a lot to do with this very podcast episode about increasing equity in healthcare. And part of that, as Nicole will discuss, has a lot to do with the food that we're consuming. So if you want to try Thrive Market risk-free for a month and get 30% off of your first order and a free gift, you can check the link in the description. Now let's get on with the show. All right, Nicole, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for being here today. Um, I would like to first start by you sort of giving a brief introduction into what it is that that you do. Um, I want to preface it also by saying that I think part of what my podcast was about is me trying to figure out, you know, what is health? What does that even mean? Because we come across so much, so much conflicting information oftentimes about diet, about lifestyle, about you know, drug interventions about, um, you know, a lot of things that are based in an individual's health decisions. And while I think that is a huge proportion of the, I think that if we just look at individuals choices and help them to inform them and teach them and guide them, I think that that can be a huge thing in terms of them having reduced risk of a bunch of different chronic diseases. But I think that there's also a huge lack of talk in this space about the lack of equity in healthcare. So please tell us about, about what you do. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. So my name is Nicole Lamro. I am the president and CEO of the National Association of Free and Charitable Clinics. And there are 1,400 free and charitable clinics across the United States of America. We are located in all 50 states. We are not funded by the federal government. We are a community solution to healthcare in our area. We serve 2 million people annually, uninsured individuals. We provide 9.6 million patient visits to those individuals. And we do this with a volunteer and staff, staff workforce of over 200,000 people. And this movement really started by looking at our community and recognizing how we can help individuals be healthier and how we can help them get the education that they need about their disease, as opposed to someone just saying, oh, you've got diabetes, good luck. Our clinics will say, okay, you have diabetes. 
So let's sit down and make a plan. So now this means that let's talk about exercise and show people how exercise lowers your insulin rates and lowers your sugar. It sh we show them how, do you know how to grocery shop? One of our uh, patients told me the story before she came through our education system. She was from Mexico and she thought she should eat a tortilla every single meal that she had because that was how her culture was brought up. And she didn't know the impact that that was having on her sugar. And so when we explained to her, okay, well, if you're going to do that, you can still do that, but you have to take a walk. You have mm. to drink less soda. You have to make sure you're eating more fruits and vegetables, but also how do you feel after you eat that? And if you skip one, how do you feel? So we really wanted her to understand it's not just, oh, don't do that anymore because that was part of her culture. That was part of her heritage that brought her good memories with her family. How do we recognize that there are ways that you can not just change your diet, but change your whole thought process. But then we also had patients who said, well, I live in a neighborhood and there's no grocery store. I don't have a grocery store. So when you talk about um, inequity in healthcare, we have to also look at the neighborhoods we live in. Doctors all the time will say to someone, I just don't understand. It's so easy. Eat right and exercise. Well, if you've never seen a food plate and no one has ever taught you how much you should eat and you don't have a grocery store in your neighborhood, you only have a dollar store or convenience stores mm -hmm. or bodegas. Who's How are how do you know to go what to get? So our clinics will help people build um, shopping lists for the locations that they're going shopping in with the amount of money that they're going shopping in and then teaching them how to cook it. And then with that, um, they'll also get a cookbook that can be shared with the rest of the neighborhood in order to learn how to do that. We can no longer say in this country, just go out and exercise. We have proven that if you are a black person in America, it is not safe for you to go just take a take a run in some neighborhoods across the United States of America. So how do we build exercise programs that can be done inside of homes so people can feel safe in what they're doing? So when you talk about equity, I could obviously talk about it all day because there is a solution if we all look at what we might need individually to make us healthier and then project that into the education space of the others in our community. I think that is very, very well put, um, especially the part about, you know, a doctor saying, oh, just eat less, exercise more kind of thing, which is the typical advice that you would give. And it's, I don't know if I would say that this is so much the the doctor's fault as it is partially the training that they receive, which is mostly in acute care, which is great. I mean, I'm glad that we have acute modern care, but they have very little training on going in depth into that eat less, exercise more kind of thing, which leaves people very confused. And oftentimes they may think it's, they may focus on the wrong things. So they may focus on like the supplements they hear an influencer talk about that are really expensive, or they may hear about like a crazy extreme approach to diet, like, you know, the vegan diet or the carnivore diet. Um, and oftentimes they can go to the store and like you said, it can be, you know, a food desert where it's just convenience stores and, you know, maybe the produce is way more expensive than it would be to go get like dollar menu at McDonald's or something like that. Right. 
Absolutely. And I was just speaking to doctors the other day um, because at the free and charitable clinics, we've started training programs for residents because we started to recognize that gap that mm -hmm. many of the residents had. We asked students, medical students, what are you missing? And, and what, what do you feel you need to be a good provider in whatever specialty that you're at? And that it's so it's ironic that you said that because they said, we're missing that practical knowledge. Sometimes we can, yeah. we, we have to learn so much. And I, I don't know how doctors can keep it all in their brains, nurses, um, anyone that's in the medical field. And so we started developing programs to train the next generation of doctors. And mm -hmm. it's, it's funny that you say that about uh, diets. Uh, I grew in a very small town, New London, Connecticut, I'm very, very small growing up. And um, I was always taller and heavier than everyone else in my my class. So mm -hmm. my doctor put me on a cookie diet. It was a diet that he had heard from someone who came and gave a speech at some place. And it was a diet where I ate a cookie every morning uh, for breakfast, then for lunch and for dinner. And that's all I ate. And um, no one ever sat down and talked to me about, uh, you know, fish, vegetables, protein, all of those things. If it fell solely on my mom who said, this can't be healthy. This can't be the right way. I'm not letting your brother eat cookies all day long. So why would yeah. I let you eat cookies three times a meal? Mm -hmm. And I do think, again, you're right. Um, I think that it's not the doctor's fault if they're not taught this information. Mm -hmm. I also think that there's so much new information. And now in the world of social media, everything's happening so quickly. But I also, also think that um, by allowing the doctors to receive training at a, a clinic like myself or some of the other community areas that they're having, they're getting to have that time with patients to understand what is your biggest concern. And, you know, it's interesting for each of us. Each of us have a different concern. Some of us have family members who died of heart failure. Some of us have family members who had, you know, diabetes or cancer. And so all of those become the forefront of our brain and giving those doctors the opportunity to really just understand where our fear level is will help them also build a program that will help each of us individually. So this is what very much led me to uh, say yes to having you on this podcast, because uh, it wasn't just about this uh, obviously, the revolutionary part of your clinics is the fact that they are free and they do provide access to people who would not have had access otherwise. But the other revolutionary part that I'm that I'm hearing from your other interviews and from your website is that it is very holistic, which is crazy because I think that, as you said, is it's it's the diet part of things. It's the it's the really delving deep into alternative interventions uh, to support the conventional interventions that allopathic medicine has is is huge. And I think that is that something that's that's not uh, taught very much. And although it's not the fault of many practitioners, I do think it is their responsibility now to go ahead and, and learn more about that. So could you walk me through and tell me a little bit more about Absolutely. So mm -hmm. free and charitable clinics, we are, as I said before, the community's response to healthcare. And I stress that in every interview that I have, because our clinics are going to address chronic diseases, diabetes, hypertension, mm -hmm. uh, all of those issues. But they also work within the community to understand the disease states or the needs that are specific in that area. So for example, after Hurricane Katrina, we found that our clinics in Mississippi and Louisiana, um, we're starting to see one year, two years later, their patients have 
not only diabetes or hypertension, but also have awful depression and anxiety. And as well as awful um, COPD or asthma attacks. And so they built programs that, that now are replicated across the country, I would say at most of our, our facilities, but they've built programs specifically to help those people get through some of those challenges. Not only, mm -hmm. also they built programs where in not just having a group session for anxiety, um, but breaking it out into um, ages or sex or non-binary people. So people felt comfortable in talking to who was in their situations. Um, I also think that in Kansas City, Missouri, about eight years ago, their AIDS clinic started shutting down. So our uh, free clinic stepped up and said, we'll become a place for, for AIDS patients to come. Mm -hmm. And you'll see that across the country. Um, but I'd say the biggest thing that you'll see across the country is the dedication to the patient as a person and not as a number. And I think that that's sometimes what, unfortunately, the way our healthcare system is set up here in our country is you're tied to, you either have insurance or you don't, and you either have really good insurance or you don't. And then that depends when you go to an ER or a doctor's office. And at Free and Charitable Clinics, uh, we, we pride ourselves on knowing not just the patient, but knowing that what all of their medicines are they on? How are they going to contraindicate? Would they like to have acupressure? Would that be something that acupuncture would be better for them? Do they feel like energy healing is something that they should talk to? Do, do we have a chiropractor for them to talk about? Uh, knowing that patient and knowing where they're coming and also providing that culturally competent care, recognizing that a Muslim woman is not going to see a man as a, her provider. She can't. So how do we identify ways that we have the appropriate entrances and the appropriate protections in place? I think that's one of the most beautiful things about free and charitable clinics. The, the person is the focus through everything that we do. That's incredible. Um, I think what you're touching on right now is a concept which is known as, it's becoming more known as like personalized medicine, um, where I mm -hmm. think, I really think that what you are saying, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like we are getting closer to this idea of, again, like you said, not just treating the numbers, because really a lot of what allopathic medicine is based off of is what is the largest amount of people that we can that this treatment has been shown to be effective for. It's not what works for this community. It's not even definitely what works for this one person because everyone's genetic makeup is different. Everyone's environment is different. Um, so I think what you're doing here with going into communities, actually tell me about that. How do you, how do you find out about certain communities' wants and needs in terms of their healthcare? Because that's, that's huge. Sure. So um, the the one thing I love about free and charitable clinics is uh, anyone can start one. Uh, we've had doctors start a free and charitable clinic, but we've had librarians recognize that people were coming and utilizing the library to search for all of their disease states or they weren't feeling good. And the librarians came together and went to the hospital and said, I need a doctor and mm -hmm. we need to start something for our community. And that I think is the difference in, in really coming down to the community itself is saying we need help. And then they contact the NAFC and we can help them with ways on how to start a clinic. We have an entire volunteers in medicine program that from beginning to end, we can help you how to build a clinic in your community. But some clinics start as just blood pressure screenings at the end of a, a church because they started to find a church service because they started to find that 
so many of their patients were saying they felt they all felt sick the same way if it, the temperature got so hot. And then mm -hmm. it built into a bigger um, system or a bigger uh, clinic. And then what those clinics do is either partner with their public health departments or a hospital, or they may do it themselves. And they actually interview the members of their community. And they go and it's like a census being done of health needs at the community. Sometimes they'll set up a barbecue in their parking lot. Sometimes they'll set out people, people to go knock on doors. You know, sometimes it'll be, if it's done with the hospital, the hospital will have a system where they, people can come and fill out forms or they'll call people. Again, it's really all community-based and it's based on a way of recognizing that different populations of people respond differently to questions. And so understanding that who's asking the question, how the question's being asked, mm -hmm. the language that's being used, all makes a difference in how someone's going to respond to you. Um, I think I jokingly said to you before, people tell me all the time, Nicole, you, you don't use big words. Uh, well, that's because the average patient that comes to a free and charitable clinic is at the fourth to seventh grade reading level. That's where, where we're, we're reading at. And how ludicrous would it be, as I just used a big word, that's silly, <laughs> um, but it would be so silly of me to speak at um, a level that I would disconnect myself from someone telling me what they need. It's sometimes just asking plainly, what do you need? Um, and how can we help you makes a big difference. I, I, I jokingly tell the story and it's very embarrassing. In 2017, I broke both of my ankles in the span of six months of each other. And I'd love to tell you, I was like, scaling a wall or climbing a mountain, but I was just walking down the street. I mean, I wasn't doing anything great, but both times I went to the emergency room and I and had lovely care, but they handed me crutches, just handed me crutches after they had put a cast on my leg and said, okay, goodbye. And I was sitting there thinking, I couldn't walk on two feet without breaking my leg and ankle. How am I going to go on two sticks and know how to walk? No one taught me no one said, let me give you a training. It was just, okay, goodbye. If you had gone to a free clinic, they would have had someone teach me how to use the crutches. They would have asked me if I needed one of those rolly scooters or a wheelchair. I broke my right leg. So they would have asked me, how are you going to drive to work in the next couple of days? How are you going to get there? Do you know, is there a bus stop close to you? Do you have enough food? Do you, do you know how to fill out any of the forms you might have to fill out for your employer if you're a part-time worker? And I think, like you said, that person-centered care uh, makes, a big, makes a big difference because when people are treated with the dignity and respect that they deserve, they also are more open to being vulnerable about their needs. How there have been free and charitable clinics in our country forever. I think our oldest clinic is 122 years old. Um, that's been in the, in the United States. In 2001, there was a federal regulation that was going to severely impact how free and charitable clinics were able to give care. They were saying that we couldn't give medicine um, to patients. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a group of about 12 free and charitable clinics, and they came to Washington, D.C., and they didn't know that a federal hearing um, was closed. That that meant there was, you know, witnesses and someone was going to listen. So they just busted into the room and started talking, uh, even though they weren't supposed to. Mm -hmm. From 2001 to 2007, this volunteer group of people had about 75 clinics um, together, and they 
they were trying to figure out what they were going to do. In 2007, I was diagnosed with inflammatory breast cancer and I had a job. I was doing a great job of making rich people richer in Washington, DC. I was excellent at it. Um, but that day I was diagnosed. I called my mom and dad, both of who are teachers. And I said to them, um, what do people who don't have insurance do when they get some sort of diagnosis like this? I don't know where that came from that I I'll be very honest. I don't know where that thought came from other than I knew that my, my treatments were going to cost $250,000 each treatment that I had. And I knew my insurance was only going to cover 80% of it. So I knew I was going to have to clear out my 401k and go in debt. So I think that must've hit me. My parents, given that their teacher said, well, we should research that and figure it mm -hmm. out. Um, and from there, I found this 12 group of people and they said, we'd love to take a chance on you. And so we built this organization from those 75 members to now 1400 members. And, um, I think really, as we were talking through the process, I just asked them, what do you need as providers? What do you need? And they stopped and said, we've never asked ourselves that question and from there, it came from, it was, well, we actually need to help the patients know how to get healthier, not just tell them they should get healthier. Mm -hmm. And we sat down and we started sketching out and it started very slowly. First, we started with diabetes and hypertension because we knew that those were the number one and number two disease states, sadly still are in mm -hmm. our country. And then it turned into, well, now we really need to address all of the issues like at healthy neighborhoods and how people can cook their foods. And okay, now we need to address mental health care. So over the last, I'd say eight years, we really built up what we're doing. But COVID truly moved the needle for everyone. Um, it just became even more for if you, if I'd say that a thousand of my free clinics were doing this whole, whole people care, those other four, 400 after COVID are doing it all now too, because COVID changed the world for all of us. I wanted to ask you something that you, that we talked about before the, the episode, before I hit record, uh, which is what does it matter to the people listening? What does it matter to me if my neighbor is sick? You know, what is it, what is it really, how does that affect me? Why is that important? Well, I think the easiest way to explain it to everyone is I'll hit their pocketbooks. That's probably the, the easiest way for every uninsured person in this country, your insurance cost goes up by $1,000. So if you think about that, obviously we, there's an average. So it's an average of $1,000. So if your neighbor is uninsured, they're, they're costing you money, first off. Second off, if your neighbor is uninsured and they go to the emergency room and they don't have a doctor or a free clinic in their area and they don't have a place to go and they go to the ER for a cold or an earache or anything else, but you're going to have to go to the ER, someone you love for a real emergency, you're behind them. You're waiting. That's causing time on your life. And then finally, I'd say that the other reason is there, we have to get back to this sense of community caring for people. If your neighbor's not doing well, then you're not doing well. There's just a sense in the fact that everyone in your neighborhood needs to live in a place that you all feel connected in some sort of way, especially in a world that's not connected. I grew up in a very small town. If someone didn't have food, someone else found a way to get them, them food. I think as we're moving in a world that has really showed 
over the last couple of years where we've been ripped apart by uh, partisan issues and ripped apart by racism even more than we have ever been before, we have an opportunity to build something different now. And as you look at someplace, I think that making sure that everyone is taken care of is only helpful to you because frankly, there but by the grace of God go I. COVID has taught us that any point in time you can lose your job. At any point in time, you could lose your health insurance. At any point in time, a global pandemic can come and shut down the world that we knew it. We cannot go back to the way that we were because it wasn't working. Mm -hmm. um, and we shouldn't go back to the middle when it was awful. And now that our eyes are shown on what needs to be changed, we have an opportunity to make this world a better place. So at the end of the day, um, if no other reason, then you'll need help someday too. How exactly is it that if your neighbor gets sick, you said the average is it increases your insurance by like $1,000. How does that happen? Sure, because hospitals, um, if someone goes to an ER, the hospital has to write that off. I mean, it's not as if they just give that money for free. They have a fund at that hospital. It's called charity care. Mm -hmm. So much money comes out of that hospital fund that they have to um, pay for. Now that may be, if it's a nonprofit hospital, it may be from a donor, it may be from someone who gives them money, but it also comes from taxes. And it also comes from your, um, you know, your tax tip player dollars on the state local level. So if someone is uninsured and they go to the hospital they're pulling money out of that pool of, of money for that. That cannot be written off if they don't have Medicaid and they don't have Medicare. Eventually, that hospital will go back to insurances and will say, we're going to have to raise costs on all of these issues because we have more insured, um, uninsured, so you're going to have to pay more. And the insurance company is going to turn around and tell you, now you have to pay more. On the other side, if the funding's done from taxes and the same thing, the hospital goes to the city or the town or the state or the federal government and says, I'm I'm seeing all these people and now I need more money allocated to me. So then the government turns around and says, okay, well, now you have to pay more taxes in order for us to be able to serve these people. So it, it does impact your bottom line directly. And that's the two ways that it can happen. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes sense. And is this, I mean, this sounds, it's almost like a stupid question, but the, I'm sure that this affects, this inequity affects individuals who are of the lowest socioeconomic status. So those who are living in poverty, but I'm sure that it also definitely affects people who are in the middle class, even people who do have even pretty good insurance because it can still like totally tank your finances if you you know get hit with a diagnosis of cancer. I mean that's what my family went through a couple of years ago. It's like we were in a pretty we were in a decent spot financially, but it was still like it took a huge toll. And like I had to think about you know a lot of my a lot of my friends. I was in college at the time, and a lot of my friends were also you know some of their parents maybe got sick from something, and you know they had to think, well, is it college or is it my health? Kind of thing like what are we going to be paying for here so is Absolutely. that is that true yeah yes you're, you're you're um you're hitting the nail on the head and i'm very sorry that you had to go through that um personally i'm sorry because of the heartbreak for for you and your family um and i'm sorry that those decisions have to be made because we're in a place where our health system isn't equitable for everyone and insurances across the board 
are not, there's different plans as we know, and people get confused. So yes, it absolutely impacts people who are living 100 to 400% of poverty. It definitely impacts people who are uh, black indigenous and other people of color. We know that uh, people who are black women receive um, mammograms at a 40% less rate than a white woman does. So we know that there's inequity that has to be addressed. Um, but there's also that inequity and, and the cost for people who are working those uh delivery jobs or substitute jobs or gig jobs, as they're called, um, they are making that hard decision about putting food on the table or taking their medicine. However, also, if you are someone who has insurance, but your employer doesn't have the best coverage, so you have to pay out of your pocket $8,000 before your insurance kicks in, well, you don't ever really think you're going to hit that $8,000. You know, how are you going to get there? Where are you going to find that $8,000 if you don't have it, especially if you're not um, a billionaire in any sort right. of way? Yeah. And then depending on your insurance and what you have, if you have it from your employer or if you bought it on the, um, you know, exchange, you know, how much money does it cover for your medicine? What medicine does it cover? So what happens if you have good insurance and it's covering what you need, but you need to get insulin every single month. And the insulin is going to cost you $150 a vial because you, your type of insulin can't take the $4 insulin or the $30 insulin. So your insurance only pays 10 or $15 for that. All of a sudden you're in a really hard place. And that's why the president now is talking about making $35 insulin a reality, whether or not that'll ever happen. But there are even patients that I talk to that that will be unaffordable for them. That $35 will be unaffordable for people. And that's a reality that we're finding in this country. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that's very, very sad. Um, I think, you know, obviously there are a lot of challenges with trying to move in the direction of free healthcare. There's also, as I understand it, there are some people who are sort of against that. And I wanted to get your thoughts on on why, because to be honest, I, I am very ignorant about this topic more than I should be, but that's part of why I'm talking to you today. I would like to know more. So uh, what are some of the the challenges in increasing this free healthcare? And, you know, maybe again, maybe it might be a dumb question, but why should we why should we strive to to provide free healthcare to as many people as possible? Well, I think the easiest way of explaining this is there's two different systems. So one is the current system that we're in, and that will take system-wide and years of changing. Um, so to go from a current insurance-based system to a universal healthcare system, say, that's a policy change that involves all of the insurance companies and involves a lot of money and involves ideologies from different people, as you've talked about. And um, then what is covered under a universal healthcare system? Is it just you go to the doctor once a year? Is it you have all of your surgery covered? That that takes almost like a, a, a ball of yarn that has been knotted and twisted and they're trying to make that straight. So that's one thing. And yes, Congress is working on that, but that's solidly in the hands of politics. And then on the other side, there is the work that we're doing at the Free and Charitable Clinics, which we're actively a part of that. But the, the work of recognizing that 
what is going to happen on May 11th. So on May 11th, the public health emergency uh, and the Medicaid unwinding is occurring. So for those of you who are listening, during COVID, the federal government announced that we were in a public health emergency and it allowed states to offer Medicaid to more people so they could get access to vaccines and uh, tests and, and items like that. That's going away on May 11th. And the reason I bring this up as an example is that the Kaiser Family Foundation says that there is going to be anywhere from four to 10 million more people that are going to be uninsured when that happens. So when the Affordable Care Act passed, it was never intended to be uh, an, an answer to health insurance. It was never supposed to be Medicare for all. It was just to get some people more access to health insurance. And mm -hmm. it took us from 40 million uninsured to 29 million uninsured. There are still 29 million people who are uninsured in this country as of right now. Free and charitable clinics serve about two, will probably next year serve 3 million of those people. So if you're looking at that, that still leaves you 25 plus million people who don't have access to health yeah. insurance. That's a lot of people using mm -hmm. your ER. That's a lot of people of adding to the cost, as I've talked about. So why do why we exist is to help lessen the burdens on the ER systems and help us to do that. And we also exist as a way to help doctors receive the training that they need to. We also exist in places that have had disasters where ERs have had to shut down or hospitals have had to shut down. We step in and we provide those cares, but we're not the solution and, and we're not intended to be the solution. But for right now, I think why we need to stress um, that we all need the opportunity to have access to healthcare is again, going back to COVID. COVID switched everything that we thought about where many of us took our health for granted. Many of us just thought I'd lose the weight tomorrow or I'll worry about what I'm eating tomorrow. And then all of a sudden people got sick yep. very quickly and they needed access. So having more access points for people to get the healthcare they need helps the entire country remain healthier as Congress is trying to figure out whatever it's going to figure out with our healthcare system. Actually, this is really a very, answered it, but that's a yes, no, you definitely did. Um, but it actually spurred another thought. Um, so, and I would actually love to get your thoughts on this because I'm sure you know more about it than I do with, with Sweden during the pandemic. They obviously took a very different approach as the U.S., and it was often very criticized. Some people thought it was a good thing. Some people thought it was a bad thing. But they basically, they they stayed open, um, right? As far as my understanding, they stayed open for, like, the big spikes in, in COVID cases. And part of what I understood from that is that their healthcare system was so much better and so much better equipped to handle something like that than ours that they could, quote, unquote, like, get away with that and still, like, help more people than we could help by, you know, even locking down and distancing and whatever. Um, so that seems to be what you're talking about is by increasing the amount of free healthcare, you could actually like decrease the burden of ER so that more people could get treated. So we wouldn't have to have these economic collapses basically when, when we do get an, another inevitable pandemic. You, you have it absolutely right. Actually, you said it better than I could have said it. That's exactly the truth. How many times did we hear ER saying, if you have a cold or if you have, um, if you don't have a life threatening issue, don't come to the ER right now during right. COVID because yep. they did not have the ability to serve someone by increasing support of what we're called the safety net, the community health centers, the free clinics, the rural health centers, by helping us expand and grow, we can serve that frontline place to take care of people. So then we could be more like a Sweden. We didn't have the ability 
as you said, our healthcare system was not ready Mm -hmm. to have a herd mentality or the the herd immunity, excuse me, that, that you saw in other countries. They were able to stay open because they knew people were going to get sick and it was okay because they had the way to handle it. There was enough capacity for them to do it. And they also just live a different life than we do there. I mean, just their work hours are different. How they right. handle vacation is different. Um, if sure. someone's sick, they're encouraged to stay home. So they yeah. have some already built-in cultural differences. Whereas here, if you're sick, you better go to work. People are worried about not getting paid. Yeah. So there was also some cultural differences that I think helped them as they moved along through the process. But the more support in communities for these community-based efforts, the more the hospitals can be utilized to use emergency rooms for emergencies and beds for people who really need them. Mm -hmm. um, and then doctors don't get burnt out and then yeah. doctors don't walk away from their jobs. And so I think that's why a whole shifting of our healthcare uh, needs to happen. And also when we talk about whole person healthcare, I think you put a good point. One last thing I'd love to say is we also are very dedicated to the health of our providers as well, yeah. not just our patients. So we've implemented mental health uh, programs for our providers at the clinics. So they have a place to talk about how they're feeling when they're getting overwhelmed and working 18, 20 hours a day, and they're doing things. So it's not just, we expect you to take care of the patients. We want to take care of you too, as a provider, a nurse, a lab tech, non-medical staff. So then we can be healthier across the board. Yeah, yeah, no. And I mean, that definitely, that makes a lot of sense. And I think um, that is the direction that we should be moving in. I wanted to ask you if there was anything, any other barrier you see in sort of expanding this, this free healthcare model to more places in, in the US. So you mentioned that right now you're, you're on track to serve about 3 million people um, within that poverty line, but there are still, you know, 25 million others. So what are the other barriers to getting towards that goal? Sure. Um, I think that there's two main barriers. We need um, more volunteers, uh, people that are willing to come and give their time. And um, we make it very easy to volunteer with any of our clinics. We'll take whatever time you have to give us. So it's not like some volunteer opportunities, are like you have to give 10 hours. Right. We're, we're not that. We know people have jobs and we have people do that. So doctors, nurses, but also Anyone who wants to give back in their community, we have an opportunity for you to volunteer and funding. Uh, since we're not, we don't bill Medicare or Medicaid, and because our patients don't have Medicare or Medicaid, they make either too much to have to make Medicare or Medicaid and not enough to afford um, insurance on the marketplace, or they live in a state that did not expand Medicaid, so there is no Medicaid availability for them, and they don't make enough to purchase it. Um, we we obviously need funding. Um, so I think that is also another barrier. Uh, we are an amazing opportunity, and I, I'm really grateful to the private companies that have stepped up and seen us as a as a partner. The CVS Healths, the BDs, the Direct Reliefs, um, Warby Parkers of the wor world that have said this makes sense. We see a return on investment. So for every dollar donated, it's five to eight dollars that you were giving in services to communities. And we can show that we're bringing people's A1Zs down well under eight, mostly to seven. We want to, we don't just want to get them to the stroke range. We want to get them healthy yeah. and we don't want their A1C to go back up. So I think funding is also, uh, that's the biggest challenge as, as we have right now um, is recognizing that we're a good return on investment and um, 
getting people just to support in their communities. But also, uh, finally, I think we're America's best kept healthcare secret. And that's why I'm so grateful that you had me on this podcast is that so, I can't tell you how many people will, after being on a podcast like this, will say, I want to give back in my community or my family member needed a free clinic and I didn't even know something like this existed. Uh, and that's because we're, we're a small team. There's only four of us at our whole office and then the national office. And we spend all of our money going back to patient care, not on, you know, marketing and commercials and things like that. And so I feel like, um, you know, I've got business coaches that don't agree with that decision. I'll be honest too. You know, the business coaches are like, get out there more. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that that is also the, just the recognition of what's going on in communities and how we can help tell those stories locally is where we're, we're going this year. And finally, I was wondering, I know we're coming up close on time here, but I was wondering um, who qualifies for, for these free clinics? Sure. So if you, um, the easiest way to find out if you qualify, if you are uninsured, Mm -hmm. That that is the first you 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 on you you qualify, yeah. and then each location might have different requirements based on if you're part of their city or their zip code, and it all depends on their capacity, as we talked about with with volunteers. Mm -hmm. But primarily, it's you're uninsured. You live 100 to 400 below poverty, so that means you're making twenty six thousand dollars or less as one person. And then we can on our website. There's a federal poverty chart. But the easiest way to find out is just go to nafcclinics.org. There's a there's a clinic. You can type in your zip code and find the clinic near you, and um, you can just contact them directly, and they'll let you know. And if you're not eligible for our services, we have sister clinics uh, that we will get you connected to one of the community health centers or a rural health center. So it's not just you're left alone if you're not eligible for our services. The same way if you contact one of them and you're not eligible for their services, they would send you to us. Okay, gotcha. And since we're talking about increasing access to healthcare, not just for you know those that are living below the poverty line or in poverty, but also just to people in general, um, how how is that going to how is that going to work and and what i mean is so people who are in poverty the acute care of something like diabetes or something like hypertension is obviously something that is that can be very very expensive for them and oftentimes way too expensive but in somebody who is in the middle class where something like diabetes or hypertension isn't going to break their bank account but something like cancer is going to break their bank account then how is this going to work in terms of sort of increasing that? I mean, there must be like a need to increase that fund so that you can provide things that have like a higher cost to individuals. Because um, I kind of liken those two things. Does that does that make sense? I know that wasn't a great way to set it up, but like oh, in the sense that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many people that are underinsured now, and that's yes. really what you're talking about. Yes, they uh, don't have enough coverage for their current insurance plan, whether that be their provider or it's all that they can afford. And so what we do when people contact us, so again, I wouldn't shy away from contacting the NAFC if that is you in a situation at all, because there are programs that will help you pay your medical bills. There are other providers that will give you information and that will help you. There are programs that will help you with your medicine if you can't afford it. And we can get you in contact with all of those programs, or you can just uh, type in help with medicine and they'll pop up on, on the internet. Also, yes, we would love uh, at the NAFC again, 
we have clinics that are building out their programs because they're receiving the support that they need. So on Monday, Tuesday, they see the uninsured on Wednesday, they see Medicare and Medicaid. And then on Thursday and Friday, they see those people that have insurance, but they're underinsured. Okay. And the more ability that we have to do something like that, the better it is. And again, we have our partners at the community health centers and they will see people who are insured as well, but they might have a sliding fee scale. So you can't afford uh, to come for cancer diagnosis. Um, you know, you're not going to be able to pay the $500, but they'll have a sliding fee scale of like $75 for you to go and see them. Uh, and it. I think it's just something we have to constantly look at and something we're encouraging Congress to look at this high cost of healthcare in our country needs needs to be addressed in general. There needs to be policy change for everyone across the board, not just focusing on the few. Right. And, and I saw another interview of yours where I believe you actually were in one of your clinics and somebody asked you, like, what about the politicians? And you said, well, they're just they're not showing up. I've invited them. You know, I don't you know, what is that about? Well, I think that uh so there are these, there's a clinics that are called community health centers. They are funded by the federal government. And I do think that many politicians um, think that they're the solution and not really understood. Again, this was pre-COVID. And we also have to understand those mm -hmm. videos that you did were pre-COVID. I think COVID really helped educate many providers um, and politicians to understand that the need is much greater than everyone thought. Gotcha. Um, and so now what we're finding is so many more politicians are interested in understanding the work that we're doing and how we're helping because we were the ones that were serving their constituents and keeping people out of the ERs. Prior to COVID, I think it was a little bit easier to kind of turn your head um, away from some of those issues. So I'm happy to say that there has been somewhat of a shift, not as much of a shift as I would like. I still get my 10,000 steps going and walking the halls of Congress and introducing <laughs> myself millions of times to, to politicians, but I'm seeing a growth in their interest in what's happening in their, their communities now. Thank goodness. Yeah, well, it's unfortunate that we had to wait until the pandemic, but uh, at least there's a silver lining where this this idea of, of increasing access to healthcare and not just healthcare, but better healthcare is, is something that's being talked about more. Now, I in the last few minutes here, I wanted to bring up a, a brief, briefly what your thoughts were about. So we've talked about not just healthcare in the sense of treating the acute uh diseases and acute care, but also in terms of like holistically helping somebody just sustain and maintain health. Um, and so obviously Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we obviously need acute care to be covered first, um, like accidents and, you know, things like that. But the goal, in my opinion, is that healthcare should also somehow help to cover healthy food and supplements and gym memberships and all this stuff. Where, where are your thoughts on that? Oh, absolutely. I think that the more we can ensure that, as I said before, that there is healthy food, healthy neighborhoods, walkable neighborhoods, there's opportunities for people to go to gyms, that they can be offset. Those costs are built into either insurance programs or state or city programs that people can apply for or whatever it is it needs to be. It needs to happen. And along with that, there needs to be that education on how things um, help you feel after you eat them or why mm -hmm. you may get tired and you have a sugar crash and not in a way of, oh, you just ate some sugar and you're, you're gone. But what does that actually do um, right. to me? And I think the more we can look at from, um, you know, 
birth to death, what we need to do to keep people on a healthy scale, the better we're going to be in lowering our healthcare costs. And I think until we recognize that again, until we look at other countries and how they are having their, their children walk every day to school and the mother sit outside in the, with their children in the buggies while they're getting some fresh air and we're helping them understand how to eat. Until we start doing that here in this country, um, we're not ever going to be healthy. So it all definitely needs to all be covered. Is it realistic or do you think it's going to take like a very long time for something like this to, to happen? Well, I think anything's realistic. And I jokingly say, because if Taylor Swift's fans can get Congress to actually pay attention to what happened with her concert, we can do anything if we wanted to. But I think it's the next two generations that are going to make this difference happen. Um, but do I, th I think it's going to take a long time. It's going to take a change in policymakers and the people who are running the companies that are making money at this mm -hmm. um, until we can prove. And, and that's why we're looking at doing it at the NAFC. We're trying to find that case study to show that if we invest at an early age in all of the social determinants of health and whole person care, mm -hmm. by the time someone is 50, the, the cost is so much less that you won't have to worry about the second half of their life. I think that if organizations like ours continue to make that case study and continue to work with the corporate partners that I spoke about that are so strong, we can make the change, but I don't, it's, it won't be in the next two or three years. It'll be, yeah. it'll be about 10 years. Yeah. I, I think it's, um it's very inspiring and also kind of crazy that all of these grassroots movements like the because that's that's really what these these clinics are it's like it's a community-based they're community-based clinics here and one of my other sort of passions here uh, on the podcast that I've talked to several different people about like sustainability and you know increasing better access to food is on um, eating local regeneratively raised mm -hmm. like food so like making a relationship with your with your local farmer which is like really it it cuts the middleman of like the grocery store and it also gives you like better access to better quality food. And I think like really that's what this, that's what your 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 clinics are doing as well. Absolutely. And I, we have community gardens now that we've started on the clinic property and we have farmers come and teach how to, to grow things and help people understand that they can grow on their windowsill. And so it's been, I agree with you, the more we can connect community resources to the the community members, um, the more we're going to help everyone in the long run. So I'm really glad that that's a passion of yours because it's a passion of ours too. Uh, I want to thank you very much for your time. Before we go, please tell people where they can find out more about you. Sure. Uh, please visit nafcclinics.org to find a clinic near you or to understand how you can get involved. Beautiful. Thank you very much again for your time. It was a uh, very valuable topic and we haven't really covered it on a podcast yet before. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it far and wide with as many friends and family as possible. And please check out my book, Return to Human, How Modern Medicine, the Media, and the Mundane Have Destroyed Our Health and How to Move Back Towards Optimal Health. You can find it on Amazon. Just click the little filter, books. And please remember to rate this podcast on iTunes. That would help us get this message out to way more people. Thank you for listening.